I assume your Bibles are open to the passage that Jason just read for us, and I'm going to sneak in a quick announcement that I will be meeting with the middle schoolers today for Teen Sunday and look forward to teaching them the Word of God. The title for this series of sermons, including both First Peter and Second Peter, is very simple. We called it Temporary Residence on Mission. We must always remember who we are. And Peter told us in his first letter that we are elect exiles, strangers, pilgrims. This world is not our home. We are headed for a city, a city whose foundations was designed by God himself. And that as long as we are here, we need to remember that we are to be on mission. And Peter identified that mission for us. I'll just read one verse from his first letter. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here comes the mission. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our mission as elect exiles, as temporary residents. But as long as we're here, we need to remember that we are living in a dangerous and hostile world. It's a world of wickedness. It's a world of philosophical idiocy. It's a world of theological error. And into this world, God has sent his true prophets to give us his word. We were taught that in the end of chapter 1, when Peter tells us that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so there is such a thing as a true prophet, and how we thank God that he raised them up, and especially to give us the scriptures. But in this world, there are also false prophets, even as Jason just read and Pastor Keith preached last Sunday morning. In the first three verses of chapter 2, we saw the reality of false prophets. We saw their activity. We saw their influence. And we saw their doom. In verse 1, right at the end, Peter tells us that such men are bringing on themselves swift destruction. But from our perspective, it doesn't seem so swift, does it? In verse 3, at the very end, Peter tells us that two things are going to happen to these false prophets. Do you see them at the end of verse 3? He says, their condemnation... Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And then he identifies the second thing and says, and their destruction is not asleep. These are the two things that are yet to come upon all false prophets. 
even those who have died centuries ago. Condemnation and destruction, both of them, says Peter, are on the way. And the way he describes that on the way-ness is by saying that their condemnation is not idle. That is to say, it is alive, it is active. And then he says, their destruction is not asleep. Well, if it's not asleep, then what is it? It's awake. Condemnation is on the way. Destruction is on the way. For every living false prophet, and in a sense, as I will explain in a moment, even for those who are presently in hell. Those are the two things that come. And they're promised by Peter in verse 3. But that assertion leaves us with a natural question. And that question is, how can we be sure that their wickedness will really be punished? How can we be sure? And Peter's answer is found in verses 4 through 10. And that's why verse 4 begins with the word for, F-O-R. Whenever you see a for in the scriptures, you know that it is a continuation of a line of thought. He is now going to explain how we can be certain that the condemnation and the destruction of false prophets will indeed come to pass. And Peter uses what I would like to call an if-then argument. What is an if-then argument? It's, It's one that we all use all the time. Probably several of us used it this week in some conversation or another. We say things like, parents do this with their children, if you don't finish your homework, then you can't go out with your friends for pizza tonight. Did you hear the if and the then? Perhaps a manager in a work situation would say to his inferior, if you don't become responsible particularly in terms of being punctual, then you cannot enjoy a promotion. If you don't lose weight, says the doctor, then you are going to experience such and such. Or maybe a coach would say to one of his players, if you don't become a team player, then I'm not going to start you. So that's what an if-then. It's very simple. We do it all the time. That's what Peter is doing in these verses, especially verses 4 through 8. And there are four ifs. See if you can identify them quickly. There's one in verse 4. There's one in verse 5. There's one in verse 6. There's one in verse 7. And they're found in a very long sentence, even in the English If the sentence begins with verse 4, look at it carefully and see if you can tell me where the sentence ends. Well, at least tell yourself. Look look carefully. Verse 4. It doesn't end at the end of verse 4. Verse 5 continues. It doesn't end at the end of verse 5. There's a semicolon. It doesn't end at the end of verse 6. There's another semicolon. 
It doesn't end at, the verse, at verse 7 because verse 7 is immediately followed with a parenthesis. And it doesn't end with verse 8. There's another semicolon. This is a long sentence, quite complex. But I'm going to break it down and it'll be, I hope, equally clear. And in this long sentence, which finally ends in verse 9, there are four ifs in verses 4 through 8. And they construct for us the if-then argument. Where is the then? The then is in verse 9. So what Peter is doing in this line of argument is he is leading us to a conclusion. But it isn't just one if followed finally by a then. It is four ifs. And all of them are his effort on our part, of course, guided by the Holy Spirit, as we have already been taught in this passage. It becomes his effort to understand, for us to understand, how we can be sure of the ultimate condemnation and destruction of false prophets. So that's, that's my effort to help you see the connection. Pastor Keith opened up for us, helpfully last week, the teaching of God's Word on false prophets. And the last verse of his passage said that condemnation and destruction were coming for them. For them, the sign was danger ahead. And I'm simply saying a natural question might be, how can we be sure? How can we be sure that they're going to be condemned and destroyed? And Peter says, I'll answer it for you. And he answers in that method that I've just explained to you. And what he actually is going to do for us is give us three illustrations of God's determination to punish wickedness. That's how we can be sure. Because that's the kind of God God is. God will never let wickedness ultimately go unpunished. In fact, God will begin punishment upon death. And then he will bring that punishment to its culmination at the judgment. And that's something I want you to see. I want you to see in each of these illustrations, the judgment that came was real, but it wasn't final. What are his three illustrations? I hope they jumped out at you as Jason was reading. The three illustrations concern the angels who were cast out of heaven and cast down to hell. The second illustration was the generation of Noah, that unbelieving, wicked, vile generation that God looked down upon and felt compelled in his holiness and justice to punish with the flood. That's the second. And the third illustration was the wicked, perverted, vile cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, especially known for their rampant homosexuality. Those are the three illustrations. And each of them is introduced with an if. Now, I said there are four ifs. The fourth if is a positive if, and it concerns Lot in verse 7. It says, and if he rescued righteous Lot. So, do you see what the 
Apostle Peter is doing. Let me just review. He's going to help us understand how we can be absolutely certain that the false prophets and the false teachers then and now will be punished by God himself. Their condemnation is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. It will certainly come. And he's going to demonstrate it by the three illustrations of what God did with the angels who were expelled out of heaven, what he did with the generation that Noah preached to for 120 years, and no one was saved, no one repented, no one believed, no one got converted. And he's going to demonstrate it finally in the case of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the pouring out of fire and brimstone. So each of these judgments, I want us to appreciate, is rooted in. Each judgment is rooted in, grounded in, the holiness and the justice of God. So let's look at them just for a moment, and then I'm going to come to some some observations that I hope will be helpful to us. The first one there in verse 4 concerns the angels. It says, if God did not spare the angels. Now remember, this is all heading toward a conclusion. The conclusion is verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now that's really important for us to to understand. I know I've jumped ahead, but I want you to see this. I'm going to go back and forth, and I hope that at the end of this sermon, this will be really clear to you. Those angels, probably the angels that rebelled with Lucifer, although there are some other theories, I'm not going to go into them now, those angels, and they must be in the multitudes, because that's how the devil can be all over the world at the same time. We've talked about this before. You've probably never had a personal visit from the devil. But the devil tempts us through his demons, the demons of the fallen angels. They fell with Lucifer when he was cast out of heaven. This is spoken of, I think, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And it was because of pride. Lucifer, the star of the morning, was lifted up with pride. And he he rebelled against the authority of God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to replace God. And he led an insurrection. And with him, there were myriads of angels cast out of heaven, cast down to hell, and placed in dungeons of darkness, says our passage, in chains. That's who these angels are. They're demons. Now, are they really confined absolutely to a location where they can do no evil? That is debatable as well. Because this passage may be speaking symbolically in the sense that they are in a terrible, terrible state now, that they are under a judgment, and that they are restricted in what they can do, even as the devil himself is restricted, according to Revelation chapter 20, when he's spoken of as being chained. And we know that that chain is symbolic of a restraint. And the restraint in that passage is keeping the Gentiles from understanding the gospel. So it's possible that these demons that have been cast down to hell, placed in in a dungeon in a pit of darkness, held by chains, in fact are granted some liberty to do their evil in history. Perhaps. 
perhaps they're also, maybe this is just a number of the totality that, that aren't allowed to do that. I'm not going to try to solve that problem right now. What we need to appreciate is the argument that Peter is making. He's saying, you want to be sure that the false prophets and false teachers are going to be judged? Then just remember, remember what happened to the angels who were cast out of heaven. If God didn't spare the angels, you think he's going to spare a false prophet? If he didn't spare the angels, then... And the second part of verse 9 says, Then he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. How long? Look at the text. Look at verse 9. How long will God keep the unrighteous under punishment? Until the day of judgment. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Are they... Are they being punished now, or are they only going to be punished later? Look at the text. God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So are they being punished? Yes. Have they received their final sentence? No. The final judgment hasn't come. And that's true of all of the wicked. I've used this illustration before. When Hugh Hefner dies, assuming he is not converted, and we should pray for his conversion, he will not receive the totality of his punishment upon death because all of his wicked influence continues to operate in this world as long as history continues. And when it's all done, an omniscient God will calculate the totality of his wickedness and dispense the perfect and appropriate punishment for him for all eternity. But if he dies before Christ comes back, he immediately goes into punishment. And this God that we worship this morning knows how to keep the ungodly, the wicked, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's how you can be sure that the false prophets and the false teachers will in fact be condemned and destroyed. It's rooted in the holiness and the justice and the ability of God to keep under punishment all of the ungodly until the day of judgment. And then they receive their final sentence and remain under punishment for all eternity. So that's the first illustration. That's the first reason why you can be sure. The second reason concerns Noah's generation, and we find that in verse 5. That's the second if. If he did not spare, notice the language is the same as in verse 4. If God did not spare the angels, now he says if he did not spare the ancient world. And he didn't spare the ancient world. And then immediately he gives us a word of encouragement, but preserved Noah, we'll come back to this preserving grace in a minute. Right now I'm focusing on the judgment of God upon the ungodly. If he didn't spare the ancient world, when he brought a flood upon the world of ungodly, you think false teachers and false prophets are going to get away with it? No, says Peter. This is his if-then. That's his second illustration. And his third illustration is found in verse 6. If... By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. Who did that? God. 
He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And now just jump to verse 9 again. Then you can be sure that this God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Two times we have this expression, until the day of judgment. You see it at the end of verse 4. You see it again at the end of verse 9. So there's a present judgment for the ungodly who have perished and died, and there is an ultimate final future judgment awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there, there are his illustra- illustrations. I hope that uh, that's clear. If the question is, Peter, how can we be sure that false prophets and false teachers are really going to be condemned and destroyed? He says, just remember who God is and how God has always acted. The God who didn't spare the angels who rebelled in heaven, but cast them down to hell, knows how to keep the ungodly under punishment until the day of judgment. The God who sent a worldwide flood to the unbelieving generation of Noah so that only eight people believed after 120 years of Noah preaching righteousness. Our text says he preached righteousness. This God who sent the flood upon them and caused them all to drown millions of people, he knows how to keep the ungodly, the unrighteous under punishment until the judgment. And the same God who poured fire and brimstone that would be sulfur out of heaven and literally turned Sodom and Gomorrah and other cities, Jude makes that clear, and so does the Old Testament, other surrounding cities who were characterized by the same wickedness, that God who poured out judgment from heaven, in a sense, hell from heaven, and utterly destroyed all of the inhabitants, including Lot's son-in-laws. I guess you say sons-in-law. And his wife. He barely escapes. He and his two daughters. That God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment Don't be worried about false teachers and false prophets. He will surely bring about their condemnation and their destruction. So that's that's what we're seeing here. That's what's unfolding in this argument. Now, what I want you to appreciate, and maybe you've never seen this before, and maybe you're starting to see it as I'm trying to open up this passage, is that when Peter finally gets to his then If A, if B, if C, then, you can be sure about this. When he gets to his then, and he speaks about how God knows how to, dot, 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 what are the two things God knows how to do? Look at the text again, verse 9. Two things, if you were taking a test, how would you answer it? What are the two things that God knows how to do? It's really clear. He knows how to, to, one, or A, rescue the godly from trials, and two, keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
Those are the two things God knows how to do. And you can tell this knowledge isn't just some kind of an intellectual, cognizant knowledge that he's got a theory in his head. I think I know how to do this. This is the knowledge of ability. This is the knowledge of action. We say that about people. We say, that guy really knows how to raise corn. That woman really knows how to uh, cook. Whatever the case may be. What do you mean when you say she knows how to cook? Do you mean she just has a a theory about recipes? No, you mean she can get in the kitchen. She can do the job. She can do it. God is the same kind of a God. God knows how to do two things. He knows how to rescue. And that's a a beautiful word. You, You ought to circle that word. He knows how to rescue. You know why you ought to circle that? Because you're going to need to be rescued. I'm going to need to be rescued. We all need to be rescued. Some of us have been rescued. But we're still in a world which hates Christians. We live in our own form of Sodom and Gomorrah, or at least becoming Sodom and Gomorrah. We live in a world characterized, as I said, by philosophical idiocy, theological error. We live in a world, we live in a nation where ungodliness is so advancing that it it is becoming increasingly difficult to be a Christian in this culture. We're going to experience trial. And in other parts of the world, it's very, very intense. And I can tell you, I can assure you that there are Christians in many other parts of the world that love that word rescue. Oh, God, would you give me the grace that I need to be rescued from this trial? I don't want to fail you. If I have to die, I want to be faithful. I need rescuing grace. I need preserving grace. What did he give Noah? Go back there and notice in verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. How do you explain the fact that Noah continued to believe in God and trust him and to obey him and who was counted righteous because of his faith? How do you explain that? It's the grace of God. And that grace, in part, took the form of preservation That's how he continued to be a believer. That's how he continued to be faithful. Can you imagine building a ship in the middle of a desert where there's never been a flood ever because there's never even been a rain and being mocked for 120 years while you preach against the ungodliness of your generation? Can you imagine what kind of grace it took for Noah to be preserved? God knows how. To rescue the godly. God knows how to preserve the godly. We need the same grace. We need what Lot got. He rescued righteous Lot. Now, I probably should say just a word about this before because I think it's on the minds of those of you who know your Bible. You say, really? Really? Righteous Lot? I struggle with him. I do too. He saw the plains of Jordan and he chose the richest ground and let Uncle Abraham have the rest. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. And then the next thing we learn is that he's living in Sodom. Boys and girls, that ought to teach you something about sin. When you move in the direction of sin and you say, I'm not there. I'm not really there. I don't do that. I'm just kind of getting close to it so that I can just observe it and see if those kids are really happy. When you pitch your tent, when you, when you put a tent near Sodom, 
and Gomorrah? Don't be surprised if pretty soon you're living there. That's what our hearts are capable of. And then he gets so caught up in the culture and he does some unbelievable things and the worst of which some of you know regarding his two daughters. But you know what? The Bible calls him righteous. And I take some comfort from that because when we look at our own lives, there's such inconsistencies. We say, how can I call myself a Christian? Well, the answer is, if Christ is your only hope and you hate your sins, you are. It doesn't make any difference how many sins, it may be a hundred, it may be a thousand, that you're fighting against. If you're fighting against them, and if God gave you the choice to just get rid of them all at once, and you'd say, yes, yes, you're a Christian, even though much about your life is outwardly yet unrighteous, the Bible tells us that Lot was a righteous man. The Bible tells us that, that his soul was vexed, tormented, troubled, distressed, and anguished every day of his life as he lived there, it says in verse 8, as he lived among them. He was tormenting his righteous soul. There's a question, how tormented is your soul living in the United States of America? How tormented is your soul at high school, guys and girls? Does it torment your soul for people to take God's name in vain? Does it torment your soul to see wickedness? In spite of how weak Lot may have been in various regards, he was righteous, and living in that city was a torment. I, I, you know, I couldn't help but imagine this week. I would like to have talked to Lot, and maybe I'll ask him this question. Why didn't you move out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Why did you stay there? Was your business really that dependent upon Sodom and Gomorrah? But I wouldn't want to ask that question in a condemning way because we're all Lot in our own way, aren't we? Oh, yes. And some of the vexation of our soul is due to our own carelessness. But the point of the text, the point that I want you to be encouraged with, is God rescued Lot. God preserved Noah. That You talk about a minority. The world was populated by millions and only eight people survived. The, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah perhaps had thousands of inhabitants and only three made it out. That's distinguishing grace. And that's my point. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And I want you to be encouraged with that. So let me draw this to its close. I just want to review seven things really, really quickly. Some of them you've already heard. Some of them just a reiteration. Listen to them. Rapid fire. False prophets and false teachers will plague the church throughout history. Pastor Keith's message last Sunday. They are a reality. They were in the past, says Peter, and they're now, and they're beyond Peter's day. They're now for us. Two, false prophets and false teachers will certainly be judged by God. That's Peter's argument. How can we be sure? Because the God who didn't spare the angels, 
the God who didn't spare Noah's generation, the God who didn't spare the Sodomites, is a God who knows how to judge wickedness. Three, the certainty of their judgment is rooted in God's holiness and justice. See, I think what we have to do is we have to step back from this whole passage. And we just have to say, what, what is this really about? If you fly really high over the passage, what comes out of this? That's, this is literally what I did this week. I put all my stuff aside, and I, and I prayed, and I just said, God, what does this passage reveal just in terms of big principles? Well, it reveals the wickedness of man. It reveals the holiness and justice of God. It reveals the certainty of judgment. It reveals the reality of false prophets and many other such things. And it certainly reveals the grace and the mercy of God. Let me just quickly run through these last four. The present judgment of the wicked is real, but it's not final. Haven't I made that clear? Five, two sins are especially heinous to God. I haven't commented on that. Look at the first part of verse 10. The ESV breaks verse 10 in two parts, and I think rightly so. It says, and especially. So when I read the word especially, I kind of conclude it must be this is something God really hates. He really hates this. Otherwise, the word especially doesn't mean anything. There's two things that God especially has to judge. And what is it? Those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Those are two things God hates. Sexual immorality that, that literally captivates a person and drives them and the despising of authority the authority of God the authority of the Bible the authority of the church the authority of parents kids if you hate authority you need to be saved you need to be converted we all hate authority by nature none of us want to be told what to do but God breaks that in, a, in the life of a true convert we, we still struggle with authority because of remaining sin But if you are captivated by despising authority, you're not a Christian. And this other matter, which is clearly a matter of sexual immorality, it's quite interesting. I don't have time to develop this, but in this passage, there's a connection between what false prophets teach and sexual immorality. And the connection is this. The reason why we like false doctrine is because it lets us live in a way we want to live. That's the principle. You work that out and think about that. We're vulnerable to false doctrine because if you believe the wrong thing, you can do the wrong thing. You see that? So these are two sins that God especially hates. God has the knowledge or the ability to rescue the godly, And this is the last thing I want you to appreciate. Although God's judgment on sinful human beings is inevitable, you agree with me? God's judgment on sinful, unforgiven human beings is inevitable. But listen, I didn't finish. Although his judgment on sinful human beings is inevitable, it is not inescapable. That's good news. How can you say that, Pastor Ted? Because I just read about Noah. I read about Noah and seven other people. They made it in the ark. They were not judged. They didn't die in the flood. How did that happen? The judgment is 
escapable. It can be escaped. Lot escaped it. And it's all because of God's grace. And that brings me to the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is no escape apart from him. The reason Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord is because God's distinguishing grace saved him based on a coming Redeemer. And Noah trusted God for that coming Savior. The reason Lot was rescued was because he was a righteous man. How did he become a righteous man? By nature? Impossible. By grace. Grace that was extended to him with a view to a coming Savior. And so, dear people of God, dear unconverted friends, this grace can become ours. It is ours, those of us who are saved, and it can become ours if we're not saved because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fire and brimstone fell upon our Savior when he was on the cross. The same holiness and justice that destroyed the world and that poured fire out from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah fell on Christ so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. God knows how. Not only to keep the wicked and the unrighteous under punishment, but to rescue the godly. And he rescues us through the atonement of Jesus Christ. These two brothers that are going to be um, baptized in just a couple of moments, Dustin and A.B., have been rescued by that grace. Many of us have been rescued by that grace. Some of you have not yet been rescued by that grace. And you need the God who knows how to do it. And he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. We need an atonement. We need a payment. We need a substitute. That's what he was for all who will trust him. Let me just lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We know that it's certainly, justice has certainly not been uh, done to it, but we thank you that every, every one of us can read this text and and mull over it, and contemplate it, and meditate on it, and draw much more truth from it. But we do thank you for the certainty of your coming judgment upon false teachers and false prophets. We do thank you that you are a holy and just God. We do thank you that you know how to rescue the godly. And we cry to you for that rescuing grace And pray that as we feel ourselves living in Sodom and Gomorrah, we will cry unto you again and again, O God, grant me rescuing grace. Lord, may today be a day that some will be rescued for the first time and brought to the Lord Jesus. We thank you for these two young men who will soon be baptized. We thank you for the the rescuing grace in their lives. And may we be blessed to hear their testimonies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just before um, I leave the platform...
we need to receive these two brothers into the membership of this church by way of a vote. Their testimonies have been out for the last uh, several weeks, and perhaps you read them on our church email. But uh, the pastors are making a motion that Dustin Dowdy be received into the membership of the church, and I would like someone please to second that motion. All in favor say aye.